It's Monday, August 4th, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pascas. So if we get hit by an asteroid, I'm definitely blaming Putin. There was an agreement between the U.S. and Russia to work on some nuclear things. We're going to let their scientists in here to check out our labs and vice versa. And part of this was uh, asteroid avoidance, actually asteroid destruction. We actually can blow up an asteroid with a uh, nuclear warhead. Or we could if we were working together. But no, the Russians and the Americans can't get along. So look out. Here comes the asteroid. Sorry, we got into a little diplomatic tiff. It is true that the enemy of our enemy is sometimes our friend, or another way to uh, look at that is two foes can be united by a common enemy. And Russia and the United States certainly don't lack for some common enemies. Take ISIS in Iraq. Neither one of us favor ISIS, but that's not enough to get us together. You'd think maybe an asteroid would be enough to get us together. It's not cute. There's no human face to it. It's a giant rock in outer space that wants to kill us. But can we work together to destroy the asteroid? We cannot. Let me read from uh, the New York Times. The Energy Department's announcement of the deal, which was the deal that was in place that is now out of place, highlighted its potential for defense from asteroids, which was a proposal to recycle a city-busting warhead that could be aimed at an incoming Earth destroyer, a plot Hollywood had imagined 15 years before in two far-fetched thrillers, Armageddon and Deep Impact, in which Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck, among others, saved humanity. Couple points here. One, far-fetched? How far-fetched? The Russians and the Americans really were plotting to launch a nuke at an Earth destroyer, if it ever came to that. And this is, this is how I think of asteroids. This is how I think of the Earth destroyers. I can't think of a giant asteroid without the strains of Aerosmith in my head. Or whatever the Russian version is. Aeroflot, I guess. And then why do you have to gratuitously calling it far-fetched? Then you got the naming of Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck. The only guys named. And they're both in Armageddon. What about the heroes from Deep Impact? What about Robert Duvall, who played Spurgeon Tanner? He did stuff. He was on the crew of the Messiah that aimed at the asteroid that were coming from Earth. So without this program, yeah, I'm going to say it, there is no Messiah. There is no chance to be saved from an asteroid. There is no new album from Aerosmith. So a little programming note. All this week, what we're going to do is play just one interview. The Gist is a relatively new show. It's a work in progress. We don't really want to get locked into this is always our format. So we figured we'd be doing things a little bit different. Some shows in the past have only played one interview. We're going to try to do it all week. And we'd like to uh, get your reaction to see how you think we do. But there'll always be a spiel. And in today's spiel, we'll play a little Sunday talk show karaoke. But first, Explaining Hitler. A hundred years ago yesterday, the German Empire declared war on France. A hundred years ago today, England declared war on Germany. This began what would be called World War I. The results of the Great War, 38 million killed, wounded, or missing in action. Europe realigned. And one wounded German corporal laying in the Bilitz Sanitarium, which was being used to house the generally wounded, for him, the seeds of an even more horrible slaughter were planted. Adolf Hitler was many things. He was a defiant son, a failed artist, a bitter veteran. Who he was is the subject of Ron Rosenbaum's Explaining Hitler, the search for origins of his evil. This is a new edition. It's about 15 years after Ron first wrote the book, and Ron's here right now. Thanks for coming in. 
How are you, Mike? I'm well. So the title before in 98, you couldn't have known and you couldn't have put in the book what the reaction to the title would be. Such goes the space-time continuum. But people didn't understand it, even though the subtitle is pretty clear that you're not really giving an explanation. You're talking about the people who seek to give an explanation. Yeah, I... I don't think a lot of people, at least certainly once they read Explaining Hitler, thought that it was my explanation of Hitler because every chapter is sort of a dissection of someone else's attempted hubristic uh, explanation of Hitler. It's always a risk in attempting irony, I've realized, in uh, book titles. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't even know if it's ironic or if the people who got so up in arms about it, and some with great credentials, like the director... Landsman, who did Shoah, who seemed not to like you or the title or the picture of a baby Hitler that's on the cover of the book. Well, that was one of the great sort of showdowns in the book in uh, Landsman's Parisian flat. And it was written up, actually, uh, by Figaro magazine Mm -hmm. under the title Le Fair Rosenbaum. And it was not actually the kind of Parisian affair I had imagined. (laughs) Lonsman, who was the director of Shoah, you know, likes to lay down commandments for people. And one of his commandments is that thou shalt not ask why about Hitler. Because once you ask why, once you seek for explanations, explanations turn into exculpations, excuses. And then ultimately, if you go down that road further, you get to uh, to understand all is to forgive all, which is, uh, in, in a way, impermissible. So when I was in his Parisian flat, when he was denouncing explanation, he said, I mean, there is even a baby picture of Hitler, aghast at the idea, because the baby picture asks the question, how do we get from here to there? How do we get from this innocent-looking infant to the genocidal monster? And of course, I put the baby picture on the cover of my book. But when you look at this picture, especially if you have kids and you think about this, this is an innocent, you know, he's not a monster there. It's so much more powerful than every other book that comes out with a swastika on the cover. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Explaining Hitler was translated into 12 languages or so. What I found was that almost without exception, the foreign publishers would refuse to put the baby picture on the cover. Instead, they'd have a uh, swastika armband wearing Hitler, shaking his fist, doing the salute, military uniform. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it is scary because it suggests that any human baby has the potential to turn into Hitler. I don't believe that's true, but it's a a scary suggestion. Or even if it doesn't suggest, but we could prove that just one did, that itself makes you question some things about humanity. And that's, I, yeah. I, I think that's very true. The, that one did tells us a lot. You know, you get into an argument about, will there be a second Holocaust? The fact that there was a first... Yeah says something important. And the fact of his life that when you read, say, biographies of serial killers, and in some cases, the upbringings were just so horrendous, and the beatings and the abuse, and you say to yourself, how could anyone have a chance with this? 
Hitler doesn't seem to have been brought up uh, so horribly. In fact, if you compare him to others who were born in his town of his generation, doesn't seem too much better, but doesn't seem too much worse. Exactly. I mean, uh, psychoanalysts have made way too much of uh, dubious evidence about his childhood. Uh, Alice Miller claims that the father was mean to him, while Eric Fromm says the mother was a malignant narcissist who overprotected him. So was it the father? Was it the mother? Neither of them has any decent evidence for him. And also, how many uh, overprotective mothers and mean fathers are in their world? And yet there was only one Adolf Hitler. And I think if there is one common way of getting Hitler wrong, it's not one explanation. It's not something having to do with syphilis in the trenches of World War One or or something that happened to his penis. I mean, all these things are put forward. It's to think that because this was this one singular monster that there must be one singular explanation. Explanation is, in a way, a consolation for people. They don't want to leave this open. They want to find, oh, Hitler, okay, we got that nailed down. The big division in the uh, explanation industry is between those who believe that uh, Hitler was created by great abstractions, mm -hmm. by uh, either uh, psychoanalytic factors, by the late capitalism, by uh, scientific German uh, racism, and the idea being that, you know, Hitler was not responsible himself. He was a puppet, a pawn, a sock puppet for all these larger forces. And so... It takes us away from looking at Hitler himself and from the fact that Hitler made the choice to do what he did by himself despite all these factors, not just because of them. But I've always wondered, do you think that there were one or two people and but for those associations, maybe Hitler wouldn't have been Hitler? It goes to... For instance, what was the source of Hitler's anti-Semitism? There's still a big open question. There's the Vienna School that said that he read these pornographic anti-Semitic magazines in Vienna when he was a youth there, and that was it. And yet some people say no, uh, Liebenthal's, who claimed that he saw Hitler browsing in his porno shop, was making it up after the fact to uh, aggrandize himself. You know, you come to 1919 when Hitler's mustered out of the uh, the sanitarium, out of the army, and he comes back to uh, Germany. You know, the gap between what seems to be an insignificant corporal Hitler, within a year or so, he's these, this incredibly charismatic, fire-breathing street or orator who builds the Nazi party from uh, 50 members to thousands, and then it begins multiplying and multiplying. You know, it's that gap, I call it an abyss, actually, that no one has really been able to, uh, uh, to give us a rational explanation for. So what are the reasonable ways where we could look at the lesson of Hitler and say, yeah, he's not sui generis, we should worry about that sort of thing I don't think we need Hitler to warn us against totalitarianism. I think ever since Julius Caesar, uh, we know those lessons. We don't always take them seriously. The one lesson that we can learn from Hitler and from no one else is that when someone announces his, his intention to exterminate an entire race, that we should 
shouldn't brush it off as mere braggadocio or self-aggrandizement. We should maybe take it seriously because someone did and someone succeeded in doing it. I mean, one of the points I make in the afterword in the new edition is that you know, there are a lot, a lot of theories about why Hitler lost the war, and he lost the war militarily. But there was a war that Hitler won, and that was the war against the Jews, and he won that six million to one. Some historians, I mean, I, I draw on uh, the work of Richard Evans, Sir Richard Evans now, uh, who claim that one reason Hitler lost the war was that he was so obsessed with the racial war, with extermination, that uh, he made moves that hurt him militarily. From everything I've read, he was very hands-on when it came to the uh, when it came to exterminating the Jews and the Final Solution. And he had his ideas about how to win on the battlefield proved to be not successful ideas, where his ideas about how to exterminate proved to be horribly successful. Uh, There's a very interesting uh, book that contains conversations taped secretly of the uh, German generals imprisoned after the war. Some of them sort of let down their hair and say, how could we be so stupid? His plans were idiocy. And yet he had one plan that he gave priority to more than any other. And one could argue from his point of view, the Holocaust was a success. Yeah. You know, on this show we had, it was a comic essay that worked And it was done from the perspective of the guy who did kill Hitler coming back and explaining, you guys don't know who this dude Hitler was, but he was bad. Trust me. I read that. I I liked it. What's what's the story with this peaceful germination that invented a kind of yogurt that cured diabetes? It's funny that no one has really taken this tack before because the idea, hey, what if you kill Hitler? Will the Holocaust still happen? Will the war still happen? What will change? What won't change? It's, It's the biggest hypothetical in time travel without Hitler. Is there a Holocaust? You know, I studied Hitler's inner circle, um, and there were vicious anti-Semites like Goebbels and Heydrich. It's possible that certain fanatic Nazis might have done this, but my feeling is that a lot of them wanted to express uh, and elaborate upon this fanatic Jew hatred to earn points with Hitler Mm -hmm. as much as from uh, personal conviction. I mean, Goebbels was a poet and failed novelist. Heydrich was someone who suffered from the fact that uh, there were rumors that his father was a Jew, and you could find all sorts of uh, psychological explanations for that. But certainly we know Hitler's central drive was for extermination. Some believe it was one that he conceived as far back as November uh, 1918 when he woke up in the sanitarium and discovered that Germany had surrendered and felt that the Jews were responsible and vowed that he would avenge them. There are others who place it at other points, but certainly I would be hard-pressed to think of a scenario in which lacking Hitler's all-encompassing drive it would have happened. But was it the case that there were somewhere anything near plans that people could point to that others had conceptualized actually rounding up and killing Jews? As opposed to we hate them, it would be great if Jews didn't exist or if Jews were, quote, wiped off the face of the earth, the actual means, the trains, the the gas chambers. Were these ideas that were out there before Hitler? 
I would say one of my most significant investigative accomplishments was when I found the archives of the chief anti-Hitler newspaper in yeah. Munich yeah. Uh, during the 20s when Hitler was on the rise in Munich, uh, the Munich Post. They were the socialist newspaper. I found their crumbling archives in the basement of a, uh, you know, a museum. Going through them, I came upon this amazing story September 9th, 1931, in which their investigative reporters had come upon a secret Nazi plan for the disposition of Jews that used the word and law song, meaning final solution, for as far as we know, the first time. So there were plans. I certainly would say Hitler was uh, part of it, but uh, it had been discussed. And of course, Hitler had spoken of gassing the Jews as far back, I believe, as 1921, as uh, reported by one of his comrades. So it wasn't new. That was his secret ambition, and he would use anti-Semitism opportunistically, uh, play it down when uh, he thought he wanted to make alliances, play it up when he thought it would be useful. In between the original publication of this book in the late 90s and uh, today, what did you change your mind about? I think I felt that the rise of Holocaust denial the content, really surprised me. It was almost astonishing because I think it's a kind of a new level of evil. It not only accepts the fact that the Holocaust happened. I mean, if you listen to the Holocaust deniers in private, as some of their uh, people who have resigned yeah, from the movement would right. say, you know, they're happy it happened, but they want to twist the knives in the souls of the dead. So what surprised me, I guess, was the depths of human nature I didn't think were possible in a way or could be adopted by so many. Ron Rosenbaum is the author of Explaining Hitler, The Search for the Origins of His Evil. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Mike. I enjoyed it. now the spiel. Miss ABC's This Week, This Week, I can't catch up on everything they said, so if you only have a few seconds, here's the main point. Out of control. Outbreaks. Race to save killer virus. Emergency mission. Border bedlam. Surging humanitarian crisis. Dramatic impact. Hope and fear. Whisk through Atlanta. Killer virus. Public at risk. Out of control. Drastic new measures. And a little later in the show, George Stephanopoulos was interviewing Dr. Tom Frieden. He runs the CDC. And I'm going to use the opportunity to play something that we sometimes play, talk show karaoke, where and I assume the role of a guest on the talk show. We'll have the host ask the question, and I'll answer the question how I wish the guest would have. Let's go to George Stephanopoulos' question. And Dr. Frieden, as you know, a lot of anxiety here in the United States about the spread of Ebola, whether we're taking an unnecessary risk. A tweet that Donald Trump put out just the other day, he said that the U.S. must immediately stop all flights from Ebola-infected countries or the plague will start and spread inside our borders. Act fast. How do you respond to that? 
I'm glad you asked, George. First, a little bit about myself. I, Tom Frieden, have a master's degree in public health and in medicine from Columbia. I have an undergraduate from Oberlin. I did my residency at Yale. I've uh, been an epidemiologist in the field for many years. I've contained outbreaks of measles and typhoid and tuberculosis. As, as you know, for the last four years, I've been with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as its director. It is the foremost facility of its kind in the world. So that's about me. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Donald Trump and his qualifications. Donald Trump, the man whose opinions on contagious diseases you asked me to comment on, is in real estate. He also owned the New Jersey Generals, the Eastern Airlines Shuttle, the Miss USA pageant, and the reality TV show The Apprentice. A catchphrase from that show, The Apprentice, is contained in the following Trump quote about comedian Rosie O'Donnell. Quote, I'd look her right in that fat, ugly face of hers, and I'd say, Rosie, you're fired. An interesting coincidence from both of our biographies, I lived in India for five years where I fought disease. Donald Trump owned a casino that he called the Taj Mahal, took it into bankruptcy. Also, Donald Trump unsuccessfully sued for $5 million after proving that his father was not, in fact, an orangutan. He also once offered to give Barack Obama in exchange for the release of his college records. Well, here, let me play that tape. If Barack Obama opens up and gives his college records and applications, I will give to a charity of his choice $5 million. I know it is rare for a guest to throw to a clip, George, but context is required before I answer this question. And while all of this does go to Donald Trump's overall credibility in the specific area of scientific credibility, let me remind you that Richard Besser has called Donald Trump's mistaken beliefs on the causes of autism, quote, shameful. Now, who is Richard Besser, you ask? Odd that you'd ask that, because not 45 seconds ago, here was your introduction of this discussion that we're having right now. And joining us now from Atlanta, the head of the Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Tom Frieden, and our own Dr. Richard Besser, also a veteran of the CDC. Richard Besser is your network's chief health and medical editor. He said that following Trump's advice, quote, can kill children. So again, your question is, what do I think of Donald Trump's tweet? I just want to go back to a little bit about my biography again. I have over 200 peer-reviewed articles published in scientific journals. But again, the question for me to respond to Donald Trump's tweet that Ebola patients should not be allowed in the U.S. So I guess I'll say this in answer to that question, George. I should answer Donald Trump's take on science as soon as Donald Trump is asked to comment on my opinion that he is a pompous, overbearing, ignorant wimbag who lusts for attention the way a meth-addicted prostitute lusts for his next fix. And to use an analogy from my profession, the media acts as an unwashed petri dish that allows this particular nasty virus to thrive. Perhaps a less incendiary way of me putting this would be to say. <laughs> well, Ebola is scary, and it's understandable that with a deadly disease, uh, people are concerned. But the plain truth is that we can stop Ebola. We know how to control it hospital infection control and stopping it at the source in Africa. So that last part, that's what Dr. Frieden did say. It was probably smarter than what I should have said. Anyway, that guy is too important to pick media fights with Donald Trump. He already has one seemingly unstoppable plague to wrestle with. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is producer of Slate Podcast, but she's fired. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, also fired. 
We're on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. We're in SoundCloud. We're in iTunes. Both SoundCloud and iTunes does allow you to use reviews. Now, I have been looking at some other reviews that are out there, and sometimes things get bad reviews that they don't deserve. Like, here's a one-star review for Purina Frisky's Indoor Delights Cat Food terrible delivery. They used FedEx to ship this. They made a delivery attempt, but the guy did not read the correct address. It said first floor front. The FedEx guy went to the side door before and left the delivery miss notice. My door is on the front of the house. If I didn't catch him on the second day, my cats would have starved. I watched him start to go towards the side door again. Terrible company for use of shipping. I am now very leery to order cat food online again. The packing was fine. The cat food bag intact as you brought it from a store two days later than expected due to an incompetent delivery guy who can't read instructions on a shipping label. See, that got a one-star review, but you know, that shouldn't reflect on the cat food. That should reflect on the delivery. This is my point. This one-star review should not reflect on Purina Frisky's Indoor Delights cat food. It's more about FedEx. Just as if you have a podcast that isn't loading, don't give the gist a one-star review. Don't take it out on us. Tell us to deliver the gist to the side of the house, and that's where we'll put it. Our Twitter feed is Slate Gist. You can email the gist at slate.com. You know what, Meatloaf? I'm going to make you very happy. Gary, you're very talented. You're very unique. You're an amazing guy. And Gary, you're fired. But also, thanks for listening.